So if you remember from last week, we, uh, we looked at two aspects of God's kingdom, and that was God's people and God's rule slash blessing. And this morning we're going to look at the third aspect of uh, this kingdom, and that is God's place. God's place. And then we'll also be introducing another aspect of the kingdom as well. Um, on your note sheet there at the top, you can see that um, I've again put that definition that Vaughn Roberts has laid out in his book of the kingdom of God. And that is there just again so that thought is continuously running through our minds as we trace the storyline of the Bible. So this morning I want to begin by uh, being reminded of part of the promise that God made to Abraham. And this is on your note sheet there in Genesis 12, 7. If you remember, God said to Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. Um, now, as we looked at last week, once the law had been given and the tabernacle had been established, uh, the Israelites were, were God's people, his physical people under his rule, and they were enjoying the blessing that came from his presence. But they were still a people without a land. And the next section of the history of the Bible is focused on their entrance to the promised land. Uh, So at the beginning of the book in Numbers, we see Israel ready to set out on their pilgrimage to the promised land. And as they set out, God goes before them in a pillar of cloud. And everything seems great at this point. We expect them to reach their destination in a matter of months, but it actually takes them 40 years to get there. And part of the reason for that is because only a few days after setting out, they start grumbling about the quality of the food and also about the leadership of Moses. The final straw comes, however, when the scouts come back from their trip to Canaan. If you remember, they go out to spy out the land, and they come back, and they give a report. And I want you to look with me in Numbers 13. If you have your Bibles, turn there to Numbers 13. And look with me at verses 25 through 28. Numbers 13, verses 25 through 28. And if, if somebody can read that for us, if you get there, you can just go ahead and start reading it. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all, all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is his fruit. Uh, to what? Through 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of the Anak there. Okay, so here they come back, they give this report, and what that report does is it causes the people to become terrified, and they refuse to enter the land, convinced that they'll be destroyed if they go forward. Look what they say in chapter 14. Verses 1 through 4, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, 
would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So their response, and this is on your notes there, not only shows terrible ingratitude for what God had done up to this point, but worse than that, unbelief. Okay, unbelief. As you know from the story, two of the scouts, Joshua and Caleb, pled with them to trust in God. I want you to look with me at verses 5 through 9, if I can have somebody read that for us. Numbers 14, 5 through 9. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly uh, of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. And we do not rebel against the Lord. We do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Okay, so there's their testimony looking at this and saying, here's what God's promised. Let's, let's trust the promises of God. God has told us that we will, we will take this land. Now, if you want to know how they felt about that report, right, where they like, that was really good. Thank you for reminding us of these truths. Look at verse 10, and you see how they felt about that. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Okay, so that, that was how they felt about Joshua and Caleb's uh, report there. So despite all of that, yes, Norm. Can you quote uh, the reference? Yeah, Numbers 14, and we just read the section 5 through 9, and then I said verse 10 as well. So yet you had all the evidence of God's power that they had seen when he delivered them from Egypt, um, but still the people will not trust the Lord, and God responds by judging them. All of that generation, this is on your notes, all of that generation except Joshua and Caleb will die before they enter the land. And again, it highlights for us the seriousness of the sin of unbelief. When we look forward to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that their fate is a warning to us. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And verses 1 through 6. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 6 says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Okay, so there's the
correlation for us. There's the example set before us not to follow that pattern, to keep looking to and trusting in the promise of God. And on your note sheet there, there, here is how this relates to us as we think about this big picture of what we've been looking at thus far. If we have faith in Christ, we too have been set free from slavery to sin, not to Egypt, by a Passover sacrifice, Jesus, not a physical lamb, and have been set on a journey to the promised land, heaven, not Canaan. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10 lays out, we must make sure that we do not fall because of the sin of unbelief, but that we keep trusting God until we reach the destination. Now, we trust mightily in the perseverance of the saints, but one of the means that God uses to cause us to persevere are warnings about going back and turning away from the faith. God uses means to preserve our faith and cause us to make it all the way to glory. Now, as we move into Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy takes us to the very brink of the land, on the, on the plains of Moab by the river Jordan. And Moses speaks to the people one final time before he, he dies. And in that speech to them, he reminds them of, of what God has said to them up to this point and what God has done in the past. And he urges them to obey the Lord's commands. I want you to look with me first at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. And somebody can read that when you get there. Okay, so what a blessing that is, that declaration over them. And then if you look with me at chapter 10, and look at verses 12 and 13 here in chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So you can see here that, that the stakes are very high. On the one hand, if they obey, they will be blessed. And we see that those blessings enumerated for us in chapter 28. I'm not going to read all of that, but you can go to Deuteronomy 28. And in verse 1, Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. So Moses goes on here with this long list of the blessings that they can expect. But on the other hand, if they do not obey, and you can see probably you have subtitle there in your Bible. Uh, in verse 15, you have the curses for disobedience. Verse 15 says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you 
and to overtake you. And so just like the list flowed forth for the blessings that God would bestow upon them, so too the curses were severe and dreadful and, and climaxes with the promise that God will evict them from this promised land that he has brought them into. Look at chapter 28 here, verses 63 and 64. Somebody can read that for us. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there, shall, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Okay, so there, there you have it laid out for us, obedience, disobedience, and the consequences of each. So this big question mark hovers over the Israelites as they prepare to enter the land. How are they going to live once they get into this land? Are, are they going to keep the covenant that God has given to them and prosper, or will they rebel, disobey, and be expelled from the land? Well, when Moses dies, he is succeeded by Joshua, and it's under Joshua that the Israelites finally enter Canaan. Uh, They defeat the former inhabitants, and they take possession of the land for themselves. And as they do so, they're, they're left in no doubt that the conquest is not a victory that they can claim for themselves. Uh, they're powerless. That's shown over and over again. But God is mighty. And this is seen most clearly in the siege of Jericho when God causes the walls to collapse before them after he commands them to march around it. And as they enter into this land and they just start wiping out peoples, you know, really, our our modern ears, and maybe you've had discussions with people who are disturbed by this, um, by God's commands to the Israelites to destroy the former inhabitants of the land, right? We can read through that and be like, wow, you know, that, that sounds really harsh as we walk in there. And to some, it sounds like God's just going in there with like ethnic cleansing and just removing these people. But what we want to understand from Scripture is God is not motivated by any type of of prejudice. And I want you to look at what Moses gives as the reason for this call to destroy the inhabitants. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, I have this up on the screen or you can flip to it in your Bibles, whichever. The scripture says this, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So what we understand about this is that in God's perfect righteousness, he is provoked by the awful wickedness of the Canaanites, which included many things, but 
the main things were idolatry, immorality, and child sacrifice. And God knows that his holy people whom he has set apart as they enter into this land, that they're going to be corrupted by that evil and its ways if that stays in the land. And that's exactly eventually what, what happens to the Israelites. They fail to obey the command to destroy the Canaanites fully, and the Canaanites remain a corrupting influence on them for many years. So we, we want to understand, again, when you think about total depravity and when you take this all the way back to Genesis and when you realize the disobedience of Adam and Eve and you see the mercy of God in not killing them right then, it helps to set your mind for what we see in the rest of the scriptures. That God, when he destroys people, is not being unjust. He's acting in accordance with his justice. Because what we deserve is death. But when we see it, it kind of strikes our modern senses and we say, whoa, what's going on here? So we want to make sure that, again, we understand the character of God and who we are so that when we come across passages like that in the Bible, it will cause us to fall on our face and say, look at how merciful God has been to me. I deserve the same fate as these for my rebellion against the Lord. Now, the book of Joshua, as it continues here, it move, moves towards its conclusion on a high note. And I want you to look with me at Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. This is such an important passage. Joshua 21. Verses, 20, uh, verses 43 through 45. If I could have somebody read that for us. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Yeah, that is such an important passage. So here's all these, these promises that the Lord has made. And here's the summation, summation of it in Joshua 21. All that the Lord has promised has come to pass. And so when we talk about the partial kingdom, here is where you see that aspect of God's people. They're in God's place. They're under God's rule, and they're enjoying his blessing, which if you remember from our first study in this, um, in this class, we talked about rest being the ultimate goal of creation, and you notice that Joshua brings that out. He had give them, given them rest on every side from all their enemies. So you have God's people in God's place under God's rule, and therefore his blessing. But, there's a but here. <laughs> the Bible's not finished at this point. A note of caution is struck as the book ends. Uh, Joshua gives his farewell sermon to his people, um, similar to what Moses had done in, in Deuteronomy. And Joshua urges them to fear God and obey his law. And he warns them that if they disobey, they will be expelled from the land. Look with me at chapter 23, verses 12 and 13.
Joshua 23, verses 12 and 13 says, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. All right, so a reminder of the curses of disobedience here. So that question still remains. Are, will the people continue to walk in obedience and will they continue to remain in this land that God has given to them? Now, as you continue to go on in the history of Israel, one other aspect that we see throughout Scripture, and this is on your notes there, is the concept of God's people being ruled by a king, and namely, God himself, which we discussed in our first lesson when, when we talked about God as both the author of creation and the king of creation. And we saw a faint shadow of this in Genesis 3 when God told the serpent that an offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head. So from that point on, we get this sense of searching for this serpent crusher, the one who would come and fulfill this promise. And as the story of the uh, storyline of the Bible unfolds, this becomes more and more clear for us. For example, in Genesis 49, verse 10, Here's what we read. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, or of the nations. So Jacob blesses his son Judah before he dies, and he tells him that one of his descendants is going to rule over the nations, over the peoples. Now, before the Israelites enter the land, God planned that they should be governed by a king. And we see this in Deuteronomy 17. So if you go back to Deuteronomy here for a minute. And look at verses 14 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. If I can have somebody read that for us. Shall multiply horses for himself, 
Okay, good. Thank you. I want you to notice here that this king was not to be an authority that was separate from God, right? But that he would be under the rule of God, submitting to God and his law. So the promise of a king is really a a subset of the promise of God's rule and blessing. God rules in his kingdom by means of a king. And in a sense, Adam was a type of that, one who was to be a ruler under God and spreading the image of God across the earth. Now again, we see a partial fulfillment of this in the history of Israel as we begin looking at the book of Judges. Uh, Judges, if you're familiar with it, uh, tells the story of the Israelites in the promised land in the years after the death of Joshua. And really, we, we did a study on this a few years back, and in some ways it's really a depressing book because people Um, continuously rebel against God's commands that he's laid down by Moses and Joshua, and therefore they rebel against his rule. And that that same cycle is repeated over and over again throughout the book. And you kind of get a sense of this cycle. I want you to turn with me to Judges chapter 3. So Joshua Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Somebody can read that for us. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Baals and Eshton. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Hushethe, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served Hushethe in eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Hushan, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Hushan. Then the Lord had rest, for, then the land had rest forty years, and Othniel the son of Judah Okay, so you see this, you're going to see this cycle that goes on and on in, in Judges. Um, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, they cried out to the Lord. God raised up a deliverer for them. They defeated some people. That person died. Then the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And you kind of catch that theme. Like, as a matter of fact, if you look at verse 12 here in Judges 3, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then if you go into chapter 4, verse 1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? So there's this constant, just this constant cycle uh, that goes on here. And the the question that we should ask is, is, um, man, why is God so faithful? Right? Why is God so faithful? We ask the same question about ourselves. Right? You wake up, you believe in the mercies of God every day. He continues to pour out his steadfast love to us. And so that's a character trait of, that we see of God all throughout the scriptures. We never want to come to a place when we look upon the scriptures and we see a people and we're like, man, they're really wicked. And we separate them from ourselves. 
and, and what God in his kindness has continuously showed to us. And so you see the mercies of God continue to this people based on the covenant promises that God had made to Abraham, that he's bringing that line, he's sustaining that line all the way until that true offspring of Abraham comes who would deliver his people once and for all. We see here in the scriptures that God is not only a God of justice, but also a God of mercy and grace and one who keeps that covenant and those promises. So the judges that God raises up are a great sign of God's grace to the people. But we see here again that they're not an adequate solution to the problems of Israel. As as a matter of fact, when we look at these judges, we recognize they're not a very godly bunch. Um, Take, for example, Jephthah, who kills his own daughter, or Samson, who is a womanizer. While we ought to be grateful to God for using them to deliver, at the same time, it creates this longing in us for a better leader to arise, to bring about a lasting solution to Israel's sin. So we should long for this faithful king. And we even get a hint from the book of Judges that things would be better if if God appointed this king. Look with me at Joshua 21, verse 25. This is how the book ends. And it it leaves us kind of lingering here. Joshua 21, verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges, Judges, I'm sorry. Yeah, excuse me. Thank you. Judges 21, verse 25. I'll read that again. In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? So there's this expectancy that if there was this king, if God puts a king over his people, that things would be better. As we move in to 1 Samuel, we see that Samuel was the greatest judge to rule Israel, that that he serves God all through his life. But when he grows old, he appoints his wicked sons as judges in his place. So the elders of Israel come to him and demand that he appoint a king to rule them like the other nations. And you remember, God is angry with them, not necessarily because they want a king, but why they want a king. They they want a king instead of God, rather than a king under God. And in their desire to be like the other nations, they reject God's kingship over them, which made them unique. So God gives them what they've asked for, and Saul is anointed as king. But the people are not blessed during his reign because he persistently disobeys the Lord. And as a result, God delivers his verdict upon him because of this. 1 Samuel 15.23 For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is Samuel talking to Saul. So the focus then shifts to David, who has already been anointed as Saul's heir. 
And God's presence with him is demonstrated very early on when he defeats Goliath. However, being the Lord's anointed doesn't mean smooth sailing through life. Saul is jealous of David and he tries to kill him. David is forced to live as a fugitive until Saul dies in a battle against the Philistines. David then becomes king in his place. So, so at last, Israel has the kind of king God wants. You may remember how David was described, right? A man after God's own heart. He definitely was not without fault, however. Again, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, the scripture is not bashful to put on display the depravity of man, uh, so that our hope ultimately is not set upon uh, a man in accordance with the line of Adam, but rather the God-man who would come and do what he uniquely could do. And you may remember with the story with David and his relations with Bathsheba and also the interaction with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, how he has relations with Bathsheba, and then he has Uriah set up and killed in battle. But for most of his life, David seeks to be faithful uh, to God. And so God blesses him, and he blesses the people through him. And that's something that's very significant, as we'll see it develop further in the scriptures. David immediately establishes Jerusalem as the capital city, and he secures peace in the land. Uh, the ark, again symbolizing God's presence and rule, is brought into the city. Uh, David rules not independently of God, but under him. And so Jerusalem is not just the city of David, but it is the city of, of God, as we see it. And Israel has never enjoyed such peace and prosperity in its history. Uh, but still, that time of fulfillment has not come. David's not the serpent crusher who is promised in Genesis 3.15, or even the great ruler of the tribe of Judah that was mentioned in Genesis 49.10. There is still one greater to come, as God makes clear through the prophet Nathan. I want you to look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 9 through 16. 2 Samuel 7. Verses 9 through 16, if I could have somebody read that for us. Steadfast love will not depart from me, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before. 
house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Okay, so just glorious promises as, as we see it here. Um, but one, one promise in there helps us to see, again, that this one who's going to succeed David suggests, again, just a, a normal human being because it says when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. But there's other aspects in that, in that covenant promise that are much broader than that and, and more glorious than that. And again, this helps us to think through how, how we hold those two things in tension. Like these promises, man, this seems to be somebody extraordinary. And then the other hand, you're like, okay, that makes sense. This seems just like a, a, a normal sinner living in this world. And how we bring those two together is like many other of the Old Testament prophecies, this prophecy is fulfilled at more than one level. And as we shall see, it's partially fulfilled by David's son, the great King Solomon, who was to build the temple, but it's finally fulfilled only by the Lord Jesus, who is David's greater son, as the scripture says, the one whose reign puts Solomon's reign into the shadows. And we see this in Luke 11, verse 31, where the scripture says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, right? So there's this esteeming of Solomon. And Jesus says, behold, something greater than Solomon is here, right? Now that, to us, that may not land on us with the same effect that it would have landed upon the hearers that Jesus was speaking to because they esteemed Solomon very highly as, as the wisest of all men. And Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here, right? So again, that would have been revolutionary. And again, it puts into perspective <clears throat> that only he would be the one who would sit on David's throne eternally. So Solomon, as we go back to the Old Testament, Solomon does succeed David as king, and he rules wisely. He brings security and prosperity to the land. The temple is built during his reign, giving a permanent symbolic dwelling place for God. Uh, the nation really has never had it so good as it has it under Solomon. We've reached here the pinnacle of the Old Testament. It looks now as if all of the promises of God have been fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come. And I want you to look at how Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple. In 1 Kings 8.56, he says this, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant, right? So you just have this climax that's taking place here. God's people are in God's place under God's rule. They're enjoying his blessing, and they are a blessing to the nations. Again, that's always been, when we go back to the Abrahamic covenant, that's always been the plan of God, that the nations would be blessed through them. And there are signs that that is happening during Solomon's reign. I alluded it to in Luke 11:31 when I quoted Jesus about the queen of Sheba. But look with me here at 1 Kings, okay? 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, chapter 10. <clears throat> and if I could have somebody read 
verses 1 through 13 with me. And again, we're reading this section because we're seeing how the partial fulfillment of this Abrahamic promise that he would be a blessing to all the nations is, is coming to fruition when you have the Queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. So if somebody wants to take 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Yeah, through verse 13. Thank you. Notice in verse 13 in particular there, and King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So again, here's this blessing to the nation. She comes, she she gets this wisdom from him, and King Solomon blesses her exceedingly and sends her back to her land. So everything looks so good, but again, it is not to last, right? Solomon ends up marrying foreign wives and begins to worship their gods. And for David's sake, God delays his judgment until Solomon dies. But then he causes civil war to break out and the kingdom begins to disintegrate. 
So after Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne, the ten northern and eastern tribes rebel against him, and they set up their own kingdom under Jeroboam. And so Israel has been united for 120 years under Saul, David, and Solomon, but now it's divided. The northern kingdom is with its capital city in Shechem and later in Samaria. The southern kingdom, Judah, has Jerusalem as its capital. And there are occasionally good kings in both kingdoms, but the general direction of the history is downwards. And the decline is obvious in the north from the very beginning. Jeroboam is concerned that his people will continue to go to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom to meet with God at the temple. So he establishes two alternative shrines at Bethel and Dan, and he puts a golden calf in each. Look at 1 Kings 12.28 says, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, does that sound familiar? Remember Moses up on the mount? The people make us gods, right? So Aaron takes that, fashions a golden calf, and says virtually the same thing here. Behold your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So this idolatrous worship is the besetting sin of Israel throughout its existence. And it's only a matter of time before God acts in judgment. Now the end comes in 722 B.C., 200 years after the kingdoms divided. The Assyrians attack Samaria and they destroy it. And there's no doubt why this happens. 2 Kings 17.7 tells us, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Now the ten northern tribes will never have a separate existence again. Their descendants are the Samaritans, and you may remember those as we get into the, into the New Testament, those who were despised by the Jews at the time of Christ. And the southern kingdom of Judah really fares no better. I mean, it's really just a sad story of decline that is told in the second half of Kings and also in Second Chronicles. And even though they have the temple in their midst, the people turn to other gods. And again, there are periods when they're more obedient to God, in particular under the rule of King Josiah. He promotes religious reform after he finds a copy of the law in the temple. However, that change does not go far enough or deep enough to deflect God's anger. And and God stays true to his promise. Remember, he promised, I'm going to bless you if you walk in obedience, and I'll bring curses upon you if you disobey. And true to his promise, he expels them from the land and sends the Babylonians in 597 B.C. to start the exile, which finishes up in 586 B.C. when the temple, or when the city rather, and its temple are destroyed. And so that golden age they enjoyed under Solomon is gone. It's, it's really nothing but a distant memory. And the partial kingdom has been dismantled. There's very little evidence that they are God's people, that they are They're not in God's place, but in exile, and they face curse of God's judgment rather than his blessing. It's it's as if the fall has happened all over again. 
You kind of have that recapitulating nature of the story. And unfortunately, when the people are brought back from exile, things do not change at all. And I want you to look with me here at a couple portions of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 10. As you may know, Nehemiah is the last historical book in the Old Testament, written around 430 B.C. Uh, After the historical record of Nehemiah, you have what are known as the 400 years of silence in between the Old Testament and New Testament. And Nehemiah is going to show us one last time Israel's need to be truly delivered. Now, before we read into this, you may remember that Nehemiah gets permission from the king of Babylon to go back to Jerusalem to oversee the rebuilding of the walls and the gates of the city that have been destroyed during the Babylonian exile. And it does get rebuilt fairly quickly, actually, as you, as you read through that account in Nehemiah. And now the people are, are back in the land of promise, desire to commit themselves to the Lord afresh. And they make a covenant that they're going to be faithful to the law that God handed down to Moses. And in this covenant that they make before the Lord, they promise essentially that they're going to do three things. And I want you to look at what those three things are. Chapter 10. I'll start by reading verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Okay, so there's promise number one. We're not going to intermarry. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Right. So there's their, their second promise. The third promise that they make, and just for the sake of time here, I'm trying to run to the finish line here. Uh, verses 32 through 39. I'm not going to read all that, but, but what they say, in essence, is that they're going to consistently give tithes so that the Levites, or the priests, could keep up their work that was needed to care for the house of God so that it would not be neglected. Okay, so those are essentially the three things that they promise. Now, do the people who are fresh out of the Babylonian exile and understanding the severity of sin of their fathers that led them into that exile, do they keep the promise that they've just made? Well, Nehemiah makes a trip back to Jerusalem. And as he gets back there, he wants to know, are the people being faithful to the Lord? And I want you to see what he finds when he returns in chapter 13, verse, starting in verse 10, verses 10 and 11. And this will go back to the promise that they made in Nehemiah 10, verses 32 through 39, about providing for the needs of the Levites. Nehemiah 13, verses 10 and 11. I also, Nehemiah's testimony here, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their station. So there's part of the promise, broken, right? They didn't continue to provide as they said they would. 
And then look with me at verses 15 through 18. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loaves, which they brought into Jerusalem on the the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So the second promise they made of not buying and selling on the Sabbath day is also broken. And then finally look at verses 23 through 27. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the nations, the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So that first promise that they had made, which included the sons of Israel not marrying foreign women, is broken. And listen, that's how the Old Testament ends, historically. Not very encouraging, is it? Then you go from there into the 400 years of silence, right? So it kind of ends on this dismal note, but thankfully, we still have a lot of Bible to go through. That's not the end of the story. Uh, God's work among the Israelites was never intended to be the final fulfillment of his gospel promises. Within the context of the Bible as a whole, the history of Israel serves as a model. And this is on your notes there. The partial kingdom is just a shadow of the perfect kingdom that God will establish through Jesus Christ. It points beyond itself to him. Yes, it was great for the Israelites to be rescued from slavery to the Egyptians, but that rescue is just a pale shadow of the perfect redemption that Jesus would accomplish on the cross. It's wonderful for the Israelites to have God's presence in their midst in the tabernacle and the temple, but again, those structures were just shadows of the one in whom the presence of God was perfectly manifest. Listen to John 1.14. The word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt. That's the word tabernacled. Tabernacled amongst us. It was in Jesus that the presence of God dwelt perfectly. And yes, David and Solomon were great kings, but Jesus is far greater. And God has not forgotten his promises. And that's what we'll continue to unpack next week, by God's grace, as Desmond begins explaining the role of the prophets 
of the Old Testament and pointing forward to the coming Christ. So thank you for bearing with me. I need to pray. Father, we're grateful for this time spent looking at the history of Israel, seeing your glory in it, and seeing the types and shadows, Lord, that it would point forward to, all fulfilled in Christ. As your word says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. And so we thank you for that, Father. Even as we have read through these portions, we see in ourselves that same tendency, that prone-to-wander mentality. But we thank you that because we're in Christ, we are promised that we will be kept all the way to glory. So we thank you for that. We pray that as we continue this study, you would continue to highlight and magnify the infinite worth of your Son, the promise keeper. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.